Forget-Me-Not is a series that tackles living with dementia. When someone's told they have dementia, their mind often races immediately to the end and what that will look like. But just like in any story, you should never jump to the final pages. Because in life, if you focus only on the end, you'll miss all the great opportunities to tell your story the way you want it to be told. If you fail to prepare, you're preparing to fail. This memorable quote from Benjamin Franklin rings true for most of life's circumstances. After all, people spend their entire lives preparing in order to achieve their goals. But what do you do when you're unprepared for an event that takes you completely by surprise? Are you inevitably doomed to fail? Of course not. Nobody can see into the future or know what challenges lie ahead. In many cases, you also don't know how you'll react until you're faced with a situation. All we can do is take control of our decisions and surround ourselves with others who will support us unconditionally. Hi, I'm Tom Wellner, President and CEO of Revira, and we're proud to bring you this podcast. Revira believes in the importance of creating a world that allows older adults to live life to the fullest. Revira supports older adults and celebrates their contributions to our society. We believe it's critical to be innovative, which is why we're the first company in the Canadian senior living sector to appoint a chief medical officer and a chief elder officer. Together, we're improving the aging experience and changing the way we think about growing older. I'm Dr. Rhonda Collins, Chief Medical Officer at Rivera. Throughout my medical practice, I've had the pleasure and responsibility of treating my patients. As doctors, we're accountable to our patients and must ensure that we empower them to live their best lives. Today, I'm pleased to be speaking with Mary Beth Whiten. She's the co-chair of Dementia Advocacy Canada and the chair of the Ontario Dementia Advisory Group. Mary Beth is an excellent advocate for people living with dementia because she herself is living with dementia. And I need to emphasize living. We spoke with her from her home via Zoom. Mary Beth, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you very much for having me. How old were you when you received the news that you had dementia? I think I was uh, 45 years old that I was actually given the diagnosis of probable frontemporal dementia, but I had a number of years leading up to that. Wow. And, and how did you feel when you got that diagnosis? Well, it's interesting because there was such stress beforehand for years of knowing that I was cognitively impaired, um, but when I received the diagnosis, it was like, oh, this is great. You know, I have a diagnosis. Uh, my partner and I looked at each other and we just said, now we know what to do. And uh, my partner said, is there a pill for this? <laughs> and that's kind of when we learned, well, no, there's not a pill for this. And realized then that um, there was no cure to, to it. 
So can you describe the, that, that process when, when you realized that there wasn't a cure? How, how did that feel for you and how did that change things for you if it did? Oh, it definitely did. So, uh, the, you know, basically what came out of uh, the doctor's um, mouth to us was that you have, unfortunately, you have a diagnosis of probable frontemporal dementia. It is uh, non-curable or, you know, it doesn't have a cure. And uh, you can expect that your partner is going to take care of you, care of you for the rest of your life. You're going to end up in long-term care. And you don't have a driver's license anymore. And so it, because it all came at me so quickly when I lost my driver's license on the spot, that it almost overshadowed the powerful message of, you know, you're going to die from this disease. Because I was thinking literally of the here and now, which was I have keys on my pocket, that I became more concerned with my driver's license. And it really wasn't until I had time to absorb what the other piece of information was of not having a cure that um, I definitely probably considered to go any, I, I went into a depression for sure. I'm sorry. And it certainly doesn't sound like that was a very compassionate or empathetic way to deliver that news to you. If you were able to speak to a room full of medical professionals right now, what would you tell them about your experience when you were diagnosed? I would tell them that it was one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my life and that it could have been very, very different if the doctor had chosen to do that. And it's about choice for me. It was about choice and education and my and empathy. And those particular things, in particular for young, you know, the young doctors coming up, if there's anything that I can recommend, it is talk to your patient as if that person isn't a patient, it's a person. Because that's what we are. And I think we can demedicalize it when we're using the word patience. But imagine you're telling your friend that you have a disease and you're going to die from it. The language that you would use would be much more sympathetic. And you would look for opportunities to say, but there is some hope here. And I think those are two very important words, you know, hope. It's talking about the many things that you can still do versus all the things you can't do. Big focus. Thank you. It's, it's a difficult story to share, and, and um, those are so, so important, the messages uh, that you just shared with us. Um, what about when you shared the news with your family and friends? How did they react to it? Well, um, it was shock, for sure. Um, because my family and friends had gone through, it was probably, I want to say three years of a deep depression, which actually ends up being fairly normal for for the type of dementia I have. And my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's just a few months before I was diagnosed with FTD. And so my family truly was spinning um, that, you know, we had to then um, go to my parents and say, listen, you know, Mary Beth too has uh, a type of dementia. 
and and for my friends it was you know your friends this is when you really know who your friends are they they reach out to you say what can i do you know not you know the, the, it's it's very much about how can i help you continue to live a great life and no matter what you're still my friend and and very much like my family you know what can we do to help you so it was um yeah it it really makes you think of who uh who can stand up for you and who wants to stand up for you who isn't afraid to stand up for you and to ask those very tough questions and that's what we that's where we started with family and friends we started about education and and so you, you would say that your diagnosis did impact some of your relationships um, with the people in your life. Do you think some uh, some of your relationships got stronger as a result? I do. I, I think some of my relationships got stronger because I knew I had to do a better job at communicating that I loved my friends. And, and so, I, you know, I don't use the word um, very lightly, and so I started to tell my friends that I loved them, which is kind of, you know, for some people it's a little unnerving <laughs> because we just usually, you know, we don't use that word. And so I wanted them to know, even though I may have never said that to them, that I love them. And so, yeah, it's, they definitely have become deeper and stronger relationships for sure. That's good. And, and, you know, good for you for recognizing that. Um, wouldn't it be nice if we just all told the people around us how we felt about them all the time instead of having to wait until something happens in our lives that's this big? Well, and that's just it. I don't, I don't feel like I have to wait anymore. And so when I say goodbye and give people a hug, which, again, I'm, a, I'm more physical in that respect. I didn't, I didn't used to be like that. And so I can give, you know, friends big hug and tell them I love them. I can give my brothers and my sister um, big hugs and say I love them. And so it's almost opened up this whole better ability to communicate when, in fact, I don't communicate that well, but it's going back to the word love and big hugs. Uh, Mary Beth, people often associate dementia with being an older person problem, but that's obviously not the case here. Uh, you've spoken about ageism being an issue for people living with dementia, especially for those with early onset dementia. Can you please explain that? Yes. So as we know, when I, when I was diagnosed six or seven years ago, um, my role models of pictures when I went to the media and started to look through what does it look like to have dementia. Every picture was of an old person looking forlorn out a window, and that person was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And, and, and th- those were all the pictures that I ever saw. I, I really didn't see pictures of people living with dementia who were still working, for instance who were volunteering. I didn't see anyone under the age of 65, that's for sure. And, and so it was very much a, well, I'm 45, and I'm starting to make friends who have dementia from across the world, and, you know, they're in their 50s. So obviously the stigma associated to 
dementia that it just you know you just have to be 80 and over and be old um it's not true and the more i talked to other people and the more other people started to stand up and say hey i'm under 65 and i too have dementia that i realized really how much stigma was associated to it and how much of a a large population of people living with dementia under the age of 65 there actually is and you know that, you know, you mentioned the word stigma. The purpose of this podcast is to challenge stigma surrounding dementia. So you've mentioned one thing, and that is that it's an older person's disease. Are there any other types of stigmas you've encountered? And, and how would you educate people around living with dementia? Well, there's, there's definitely, there's lots of different types of stigma that are associated to dementia. Um, when we say the word dementia, there's a stigma that the person has Alzheimer's disease. And what it doesn't do, that stigma, is recognize that there's over 100 other dementias that someone may have. And so by doing that, what it enables people to do is stigmatize you according to the Alzheimer's sim- symptoms. So for instance, um, Someone will make an assumption that even that I, if I say I have dementia, that I can't draw a clock on the paper, which is an indicator of Alzheimer's if you can't do that, whereas I can. And, and by the way, that affects a lot of the tests that um, you know, are written in stigmatized language as well. Um, there's the stigma that, oh, well, you must not be able to be very useful to your family around the house. Whereas in fact, it's allowed me to kind of do the things that I want to do around the house. So for instance, I get to do more gardening and um, there is, uh, you know, we, we do things a little bit differently around the house. So there's that, there's this stigma that I can't take care of my family still, whereas I can, but in a different way. There's the, the stigma around, um, I, I, um, you know, I, I, I can only yell at people and communicate in a way that's uh, mean and that it's um, in a physical way where I hit people, whereas that's not the truth. The stigma is that when we understand how people with dementia can communicate and how other people play into that, then that stigma will eventually start to disappear. I don't know about eventually. It's got a long way there. But So can I communicate my love for family? Yes. Can I, um, you know, can I show how frustrated I am um, only in a way that's detrimental? No. There's many ways that I show that, you know, I'm hurt or um, I'm mad, for instance. So that, that whole language and physical stigma. There's a stigma that I have to take medication. And um, there's a stigma that, you know, I, um, I should be locked up in a, a ward, a long-term care ward. There's stigma that that says... I'm not going to be a very good researcher, for instance, in an academia field. 
whereas actually I can be a very good researcher. We do things just a little bit differently. There's stigma that I can't write when actually I can, but it might just look a little bit different. You know, I, I might have to use different tools in order to do so. So almost really every major component of your life, it feels like stigmatized. It's what you do with it. You know, you can, you can accept the stigma or you can say, I don't accept the stigma and really focus in on how to counteract that stigma and the, and the issues that it causes. That's that's a lot. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all of that because uh, I think generally people think about some of the you know memory loss, but they don't think of all of those very valuable points that you just brought up. Um, keeping in mind that our, our audience may not be all that familiar with frontotemporal dementia and how it presents and that memory is often fairly well preserved in the beginning. Are you having issues with your memory at this point? Are there things that you're remembering better than others? I've been very fortunate. So with uh, frontotemporal dementia, um, it affects your you know, your lobes up and above your, your ears and then in the front part of your brain. And what happens there is it, as you mentioned, it doesn't affect my memory as quickly. Over the last, I would say, probably three months, my memory is definitely declining in, um, in what I'm remembering. For the most part, I can remember things that happened many years ago. Those, those long-term memories are, are still quite strong. It's the things that happened just yesterday. It's things that happened today that I'm struggling with. And so I can present very well as, you know, um, looks like I can walk, talk, chew gum all at the same time mm -hmm. and you know, um, things are fine. But where I'm struggling with, I'm very busy um, as an advocate. I have a lot of meetings and my schedule is very, very busy. And so this is where we're really seeing the impact of my changing ability to remember. I'm thinking that I need to be at a meeting and I'm not. I'm making mistakes in my calendar now. Um, and, and so that, that really affects you because that, that's the here and now. For the sake of our audience who, again, may not understand that there are definitely differences between frontal temporal and Alzheimer's, for instance, where, as you know, Alzheimer's affects short-term memory. Generally, it's the first symptom is the short-term memory. Could you speak a little bit to what you noticed first? Sure. So so for for me, what um, and I didn't notice it. It was my, uh, my partner, Don, that um, as we started going through things, noticed it I have the I would say the inability to understand finances like really understand finances and so I was making huge financial decisions and um, by myself and they were um, you know um, I basically spent our savings without my partner's knowledge and so that decision-making really is affected in FTD. What's a good decision? And um, with front to temporal, many, many people like myself make these crazy decisions to do with finances that puts their family in crisis immediately. 
And so those are the types of things that we're dealing with versus, you know, I can't remember what I did today. We're dealing literally with, what do you mean you just spend taller savings? You know, so um, very different type of, of a, a diagnosis as well. And, um, and so we started to say these things to our many doctors that looked at me, and there was many of them. I, I think I ended up with about 12 different diagnoses. And so all those different symptoms, well, you can't have uh, dementia, you're too young. And that, I mean, we heard that from every doctor. And so um, those symptoms that I was showing that differs from Alzheimer's, um, including um, the ability to understand complex information, which I needed to do for my job. I just wasn't understanding my job anymore. I wasn't having the ability to, I led a team of people and I couldn't really remember um, the long-term goals or the short-term goals that we had discussed. And it was starting to show in my emotions. I became easily very, very frustrated with people. Um, I expected certain things and if that didn't happen, they were going to get an earful. Whereas that is a very different person from what I had normally been. So we were not, um, you know, we were being told, my partner was being told that people at work were going, you know, something's going on with Mary Beth. So um, those are the, those are the, some of the big ones that versus, you know, again, the Alzheimer's um, that affected me. And it has to be frustrating to know that something is going on and not be able to get an answer. Oh, it, <laughs> I can't even tell you how frustrating it was. So I was put on long-term care, or sorry, long-term leave um, from work by my local doctor, who was an excellent doctor. He knew there was something wrong. He didn't have the ability to pinpoint it. And so he kept bringing in these different specialists, and we'd go to different specialists. And, um, and it was a requirement uh, for my the finances that I got due to long-term care or long-term um, that I had to go to all these different doctor's appointments. So I went to psychologists and psychiatrists and I mean, it just went on and on and, and they were very long and frustrating meetings because they were trying to put me in a hole somewhere, pigeonhole me. And yet it didn't make sense. And yet they kept trying to you know push you down into this. Well, you must have, uh, for instance, um, <laughs> um, we had marital problems. That's what one of the psychiatrists said to myself and Don, that I had marital problems. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with our marriage. Well, you know, there must be. You're, you're, uh, you're uh, making up stories is really kind of what the person was saying. I was making up stories so that my partner felt sorry for me. That was one psychiatrist appointment. Sounds horrible. It sounds really horrible. And, and I, I hope that um, every one of my physician colleagues hears this podcast and recognizes how many things went wrong with this scenario. Uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So what are some of the tools or strategies you use to continue to be independent, to continue to thrive as you have? I was very fortunate. We actually, my family was very fortunate in that when, when I was diagnosed, it was eventually I came to the, okay, 
now I now I know what I have. Now I need to start back to living. You know, I'd, I'd been in a depression for years, and I was really tired of being depressed. I wanted to get out and make changes. And so I met um, with the Murray Alzheimer's Research and Education uh, Partnership or Program out of the University of Waterloo. And they've been in the business now for 20 years for working with people living with dementia. And it's not on, um, these are all the things you can't do. They work with people on, these are all the things you can do. And it was the first really advocacy group that I met. And they produced, uh, they were just started producing a guide called Biosporus Guides. And it gave me so much hope. And I just thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an advocate. And it was truly because of this organization that, um, you know, has, has led my way over the past seven years to really pushing uh, Canadian society and international society and local society and saying, you need to challenge your own personal stigmas as a doctor. You know, what do you in, what do you believe as a cultural stigma, for instance, for yourself versus um, really talking to your patient? And I forgot your question, so I think I'm rattling, but it, it ignited a fire in me, I think I can say. And, and that was the beginning of advocacy, and that was the beginning of telling myself and showing myself that I can still be a very successful um, citizen and a successful uh, friend and a warm and loving, t- you know, family member. What other goals? What, what other goals for the future? What do you want to do in the next several years? Um, <laughs> one of the early goals, I, I have to say I accomplished it. So, you know, about six years ago, uh, Canada did not have an, a national dementia strategy plan. And so myself with many other, many other people across Canada, said we need to have one and you know all of the effort that it took for us to make that happen well I'm part of the uh, the federal minister ministerial advisory group and I don't think it gets much better than that to be able to help uh, you know the federal minister of health um, provide advice to her for what a national dementia implementation plan will now look like so as far as the goals are concerned, the Dementia Advocacy Canada is a really important organization that I think is going to do some just tremendous work in this area of stigma because it, its goal, it's a national organization. It's working with people living with dementia and care partners. And our goal is to work directly with the doctors. You know, we hope to be able to sit down someday in front of doctors and say, this is a person who has dementia and look at all the things we can do. So that goal is very much um, important to me. And in understanding that we can affect change, we can affect change through education at the university level, at the high school level, etc. And I would say that's probably one of my biggest goals. My second one is I really wanted to write a book. And so over the years, I created what, um, what I call journal articles. And I used to send them out to, you know, some family and friends. I now have 
I think it's about 160 journal articles from the point of diagnosis till about two years ago. And lo and behold, I'm producing a book. So that book's going to go out, uh, I think, in April. And I think that can really help to change the stigma too when people start to read it because it's, you know, it's written by a person living with dementia. My ups, my downs, my, you know, my dementia work, my family. It's about any topic. And then I guess the other final one. I, th- I didn't think I had many, but <laughs> I guess I do. I just want to be. Um, I want to be a really good grandma. My uh, my daughter Brianna, she's uh, expecting in March, and this is going to be our first grandbaby, and we're just so excited. And so I just I just want to be, you know, a really, yeah, really great grandma. That's fantastic! Congratulations. Thank That's you. exciting. You know, I was going to ask you, you, you said in the beginning you felt helpless and vulnerable in the beginning of your journey. Um, I wanted to ask how you feel now, but based on everything you've just said, I think I know. Uh, but, <laughs> but go ahead and tell me how you feel now. I feel good in the sense of I know the tides are starting to change. One of the things that I did before uh, this call is um, – I wanted to take a, a look at stigma as de- defined by the international world. And, you know, they've done some really good work as far as defining what it is. And there's a, there's a picture. And what it does is it shows, you know, the reducing stigma. Talks about on the left hand, more understanding and awareness, less negative connotations, societal empathy, reduced fear. And then on the final one on the right-hand side, then it talks about the reduced stigma. And I asked myself, how have I done with that? How, where, where has my work led me? Am I on target? You know, and the things that I have done and continue to do are certainly in line on how to reduce stigma. So I can't help but feel pretty good and feel, feel pretty proud of the, and I, I really do mean I have worked with just unbelievable people that without them, my journey would be different. Um, So I feel pretty proud with all of the things that we've accomplished as teens. And um, I feel pretty good. I, I, you know, like anyone, I, I'm nervous on what, you know, what lies around the corner for me, but you just have to stay focused. Well, you should be proud because you've, you've just done so much, um, and you should be really thrilled with what you've been able to accomplish. And more than that, what you've been able to share um, with your experience in reducing stigma. So if we have the entire world listening right now, and if you were to say one thing that you wanted every single person to know, what would that be? The person in front of you who has dementia is a person. Treat them like that period. Perfect. Beautiful. Mary Beth, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and for your advocacy for people living with dementia. We wish you the very best and look forward to continuing to hear from you as you continue to destigmatize dementia. And I want to hear about your grandbaby when he or she comes along. (laughs) Well, I appreciate the work that you do and uh, thank you very much for having me today.
One of the most rewarding aspects of being a physician is the privilege of being a part of my patients' lives through a variety of challenges and triumphs. Not every diagnosis I give is one that a patient wants to hear, but I'm often amazed at the way bad news can become a catalyst for inspiring a positive response. Some people use life-changing news as an opportunity to take control of their lives and live the life they want. I find this truly inspiring. After we signed off with Mary Beth, she had one more point she wanted to leave the listeners with. One of the things that as we were leading up to try and get my diagnosis and the many doctors that we were talking to, obviously Don and I were scared at this point. I mean, it had been years and no one seemed to know what was going on. One of the doctors said to Don and I, after a long, grueling conversation, he said, you better hope it's not dementia, because if it is, it's game over. And that was my diagnosis. And so I walked into a diagnosis thinking, it's game over. I can't imagine talking to anyone like that. I, I really want to suggest also to doctors and to anyone listening about being an advocate for yourself. You know, if, if you have, if you are working with a person living with dementia and a care partner, talk to them about advocating. And advocating for yourself simply means standing up for themselves and saying, this is what I want, this is what I need, and this is how it should come. It's important to give people the voice. And that's done through advocacy work. And getting people to understand that it doesn't have to be this big national advocacy organization, but that you, you know, help enable them by being advocates and encourage them to join these organizations. Um, because they, this is where they can get peer support. This is where they will learn more about this or their disease. This is where they can affect policy. So definitely there's, um, there's many things that can be done right at the point of diagnosis. And I would say, really think about that story. What is it that you want to help that person live the best life they can? I couldn't have said it better myself. On the next episode of Forget Me Not. The first step is to help them to understand they're not alone on this journey and to support them in getting the opportunity to build some circles of support. Once you receive a diagnosis that you have dementia, it's time to figure out your next steps. There are many agencies and groups that can help support you as your needs change. We'll learn how to navigate what can be a confusing time and find the solutions that fit your life. Forget Me Not is brought to you by Revira. It's produced, written, and edited by Aaron Rathbone. We want to give a special thanks to Mary Beth Whiten for speaking with us today. If you'd like to learn more about Mary Beth, you can follow her on Twitter at Mary Beth Whiten. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Forget Me Not.